Welcome to BIV Today. We are the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and I want to tell everyone all about our next upcoming event. It's BC's fastest growing companies. We're going to have a reception with regards to just celebrating what we have been able to figure out through our adept group of researchers who are the fastest growing companies in all of British Columbia over the last five years. It's going to be on October 4th. You can go to BIV.com slash events for more information. And coming up today, we are speaking to our BIV tech panel about everything from the closure of Capcom's Vancouver office to the sudden departure of Instagram's co-founders. And a little later on, we're also going to be speaking to Kenneth Evans. He is the managing partner of Ruckus Digital and Apex PR. New report out talking all about why Canadian CMOs, that means Chief Marketing Officer, why they seem to be struggling with keeping up with changes going on in the industry. It's going to be a fascinating conversation there. But first, here's our BIV Tech Panel. With us today to discuss the latest news in technology, it is our BIV Tech Panel, consisting this week of Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fawkes. She's the CEO of the Glue Technology Society. Ali and Linda, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So a little bit of late-breaking news. I, I, I don't blame anyone if they're not all up to date, but late Monday, the co-founders of Instagram announced suddenly that they were resigning. Ali, what's your I know hot take on something like this <laughs> with the departure of these guys that have been you know kind of the, the forebears of one of the biggest social media companies in the entire globe? Yeah, I was, I was definitely caught off guard by this announcement. Uh, Instagram is Facebook's you know, shining light out of, uh, I think, all of their uh, social media, uh, you know, domain. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's not too much information online on this one right now, but I did do a little bit of quick digging around and it, sound, it sounded like potentially Mark Zuckerberg has uh, potentially pushed them out. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but, you know, founders reached this, this point in, in their life cycle with companies and, you know, they've been, they've been with Facebook for a good run. Yeah, I mean, the acquisition happened about six years ago. It was a billion dollars. And since then, I guess these two guys, they, they would have seen you know, WhatsApp you know, acquired for billions and billions of dollars more. I'm wondering if maybe they've just kind of been sitting around thinking like, man, did, did we sell out too soon? Are there other opportunities for us to go forward? Uh, what, what's your initial take here, Linda? Hindsight is painful. That's yeah. my initial take on that. I, I'm guessing... Uh, again, being caught off guard by the news that um, perhaps it's part of the housekeeping at Facebook trying to streamline their services. And uh, that might just be some news the founders didn't like to hear. And it was time to move on because a billion dollars wasn't a bad payday back then. Back yeah. then. It's a bit yeah. surprising. It was a bit surprising to me just because, you know, for all the, you know, Facebook's a public company. And for all of the privacy issues, all of the, you know, media scrutiny they've been under, Instagram has really flown under the radar. Uh, and has really been the one positive within Facebook. Even WhatsApp, sometimes you know people are are, are t- attacking that, but Instagram has managed to do quite well. So this was this was quite surprising. Very surprising. Yeah, I would just expect a lot more of what you're saying, Linda. Like more product integration between Facebook and Instagram, because we've heard that there's maybe been a lot of pushback from the Instagram co-founders against Mark Zuckerberg. Kind of maybe a, a clash of different cor- corporate cultures. So. 
It'll be fascinating to see what my Instagram experience is going to be looking like going forward. I actually, I use Instagram a lot more than I do Facebook right now. And it's just kind of funny to see yeah, that shift, well. you know, just over the last few years. Like I, I find it to be a lot more of a positive experience than Facebook personally. Well, with me. our old people over at Glue, no offense, Glue people, but um, if they're not into social media, that's the first plot first platform we suggest they try because it is positive it's easy it's visual no requirement for feedback yeah. so instagram's a great platform for older new social media users well we'll bring it a little bit closer to home now because last week we found out that the japanese gaming giant capcom uh they are closing its vancouver office based over in uh, uh, burnaby of course but 150 workers there they actually suspended operations uh last week so uh there's a lot more people a lot more talent hitting this ecosystem right now I don't know. Do you think this is more of a, a one-off or do you think it's indicative of maybe overall concerns going on in the industry right now, Linda? I think it's an indication of how competitive the gaming market is. Yeah. And I don't think it's a negative at all in the industry and certainly not locally. We have 25% of the interactive gaming companies located here. Um, the last two titles out of Capcom didn't do well. Um, maybe Parent Co. deciding to pull back, but I don't see it as a negative here at all. Yeah, you much of a Capcom gamer, uh, Ali? Because I actually <laughs> Dead Rising into, Four. <laughs> well, I, I looked into I like well, their other titles, and they are like a it's a console based sort of uh, studio that was going on here, and they're very much make or break based on sales. And I was speaking to other people in the industry, and, and they're saying they had a couple of rough quarters going on, and I think they're just saying, you know what, uh, time to uh, kind of cut baits with regards to the Japanese parent company. Yeah, I mean, I haven't played a, a Capcom game in many, many Not since decades. Your Street Fighter. Uh, day. <laughs> it has, yeah, at least a decade, maybe two. And, uh, you know, I just, I can't help but think it has something to do with our current environment for technology and software development. I just, I, I, something inside is telling me they're looking at their cost infrastructure. Uh, yes, sales have not been there, but the, wa the wage inflation in technology in Vancouver has been fairly astronomical these last few years, and maybe they just want to get get ahead of it and pull out while they can. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I am working on a follow-up story on this after it broke last week, but uh, what I am finding out from the industry, though, is Alberta is actually offering much greater tax incentives. They launched them back in the spring, and it has the effect of a lot of companies are actually looking towards the other side of the Rockies about opportunities there. That's what the industry is actually concerned about right now, Is especially when you consider the high cost of living in Vancouver. So uh, absolutely valid, valid point. And, uh, and it should be a concern for the local economy. Uh, it's not just the province, but even the cities, cities of Calgary, the city of Edmonton. Uh, you know, I know companies that are not even paying rent in these cities. They're yeah. just housing for basically they're they're they've set up office for free. Uh, and so that's going to be very uh, interesting to see how that plays out over the next three, four or five years, what, what the startup environment looks like there. There's no reason not to have uh, satellite development offices in those cheaper areas as well. That said, I mean, Linda, do you think there's the opportunity for, I mean, 150 workers for a lot of the local companies to scoop up this desperately needed talent? Or do you think there's actually kind of the worry that a lot of these very talented high in demand workers but actually look at other opportunities across Canada where you're not paying, you know, $1,500 for a, you know, 500 square foot apartment. 
I think people are going to start looking elsewhere. If you're trying to find a balance between quality of life and where your hard-earned dollars are going, Vancouver is a tough sell. It just might not be enough here to keep these young, talented people local. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the the macro trends. I think uh, the job, the job, uh, the way the wage inflation and in technology is has been fairly aggressive. The cost of living hasn't has not improved. Uh, other cities are taking meaningful steps in making life better for startups. Calgary, free rent. Toronto just added, Mars just announced this morning that they're adding another a large facility right on the water. That's going to create, you know, hundreds and hundreds of new spaces for startups. Uh, so the trends are not working in Vancouver's favor long term. I, I agree. So I already know the answer on, on Ali's part. Uh, we've discussed this in the past, but I, I want to throw this to you, Linda. Are, are you a fan of uh, streaming services? Are, do you watch your Netflix, uh, the, your Amazon Prime videos, uh, etc.? I do binge. Do you do love binge? streaming? Yes. I'll, I'll, I actually don't do any of the cable guy, any of the broadcast guys. Yeah. I haven't for years. I'll, I'll put you on the spot. What What was the last show you think you binged? Is there anything that pops up? In your brain right oh, now. I'd be embarrassed to say it's going to be one of the Acorn TV shows because I'm a big mystery yeah. person. Um, I did binge Breaking Bad recently, so I feel pretty good about that. South Park, Very streaming nice. a lot of South Park. So. I think, yeah, there's a season premiere this week as well. Yep. So there you go. Um, but Ali, uh, the reason I bring this up, we've talked a lot in the past, just kind of the dominance that Netflix has right now. And yep. Apple, they obviously want to get in on this game. But a fascinating story, uh, Wall Street Journal is reporting that They've been incredibly conservative about the sort of content that they want out there. They, they want kind of this big tent material that is going to appeal to mass audiences. And so far, they've kind of nixed the uh, Dr. Dre biopic because of <laughs> sex and violence. I don't know how you give the green light to a Dr. Dre biopic and then you're shocked that it would include sex and violence in it. But I don't know, my personal opinion, and, and I, I want to know where you guys are right now, but if you try to make something for everyone you kind of end up with something for no one where it's just kind of bland vanilla stuff. And, and I wonder if the content game that Apple is trying to play right now, if it's just, just entirely different arena that isn't necessarily going to meld with kind of that dominance that they've shown within software and hardware, where, where do you fall in on this debate over Apple's content future, Ali? Uh, I think Apple's in dangerous territory. I think uh, it, it's exactly what you just said. It's, it, it's so you're, they've almost reached this point where they have talked themselves out of out of getting anything actually out there that's practical. Uh, content is the name of the game. Uh, I binge watch Netflix now, you know, fairly uh, frequently, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the, and it's content, content, content. That's that's why that's why we're going there. And so Apple has done everything it can. It's it's spent millions of dollars hiring talented uh, Hollywood executives. It's uh, it just, but I think they have this cultural you know, pull towards perhaps it just goes back to even Steve Jobs and and uh, Pixar. Like it probably goes back that far is my guess. Yeah. I mean, look, if you make nothing but Pixar nonstop, <laughs> I think, yeah, you'll make a lot of money. I just don't think that's how... No, or that's it's not the current thing. way. Yeah, yeah, it's not the current way. Well, I'm looking at them signing a deal with Oprah uh, over Steven Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment. The wave of um, our new culture of cord cutting. We don't want to be watching NBC and CBC and these um, broadcasters anymore. And so I think Apple has a good role to play there. And if this is a content arms race, all they need is money. 
And they've and got lots of that. They do. And so yeah. what is Netflix spending? Eight to 10 billion a year on, on unique content. Apple saying we're going to spend one. The rumor is in LA, they're going to spend three. They're being called the expensive NBC. And I, I would say like Apple, they roll things out slowly and conservatively and they have a bundle of services they can include in that monthly streaming fee. We can do texture magazines. We can do news. We can do, um, music and now perhaps TV content. So I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, they do. They do have the the mediums so they can almost afford to be late to the game on this one. But I just don't know when the line is drawn. Like when, 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 when have they waited too long and have they lost all all the users to Amazon and Netflix. But I go back to the cord cutting too. If we're going to cut uh, the cord and not pay for monthly cable then or monthly um, TV from our providers, then we can afford to buy uh, a subscription to Netflix and to Acorn, let's say, and, and to Crave TV and all these other apps. And so I think Apple can be, doesn't have to be an all or nothing. They can be one in the lineup. Even Prime TV and yep. Netflix and Apple TV could exist in a house easily. Yeah, I yep. mean, it, it, it's still like Amazon is still trying to figure out exactly what its identity is going to be, where we have all these kind of like cutesy sort of shows that they're putting on. And I think Jeff Bezos is finally like, no, we want like a big blockbuster. So they're spending like half a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings series. So That's right. exactly. I, I'm look, uh, all it means for like, uh, people like us, content consumers is more content out there, more good stuff, more money going around. It's I great mean, for the consumer. More hours streaming. Well, exactly. Uh, less productivity. Uh, <laughs> Binge for, watching. You know, me personally. So, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> more of the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, just uh, finally to cap it off here, I, I, this story has been floating around. We were talking about Facebook earlier. It's been all over my Facebook feed, but uh, the NCIX company, which we call declared bankruptcy last year. Well, apparently their database servers, they're actually being advertised for sale on Craigslist with all the information still intact. And it kind of brings up a question that I'm curious about here is what exactly happens to customer data when a company just kind of dies? Is there like a responsibility that maybe government needs to undertake that certain regulations need to be followed here? What is your initial take on this, Linda? I think that when a company is going bankrupt, they're under huge emotional pressure. They no longer have money. They probably don't have employees. So nobody's thinking no about one's ma- No what, one's managing risk. No one's managing risk. Nobody probably cared before this happened what they were going to do in this situation. I don't think – I think that's probably pretty common. I, I do believe uh, when we look at the data these companies collect, the there may be no assets left in the company, but this data is incredibly valuable to many purchasers. Yeah, and there's companies today that are that are that are spending a lot of money to buy that that data, and yeah. they almost create companies from it. Types. There's a few, a few right. companies out there that have they've gone down that path. I when I when I read this, I actually went back and checked my emails because I've I've ordered things from yeah. NCIX, so I went and started searching whether they had my credit card information, and they did. So I had to call and make sure I changed my credit card information, and I recommend most people do. It's scary, well, um, but that's... this to answer your question, it's 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 not the government's responsibility. It's I mean there is a privacy act uh, in that's both federal and provincial, and government and companies are supposed to follow it. The the it really what do, what it does come down to is the point Linda, that Linda make that Linda made, and that is that um, that when companies are going through this tough time, uh, no one is managing that downside risk and uh, they're sort of left to fend for themselves. And we can't know who's purchasing the assets. And even if the assets are just a bunch of servers with the data on it, we as consumers can't know who's going to get that and what they're going to do with that information once they do. Yeah. So this specific situation, a bankruptcy situation, probably the Bankruptcy Act or trustees who are taking over these companies need to 
need to be aware of these risks and uh, and manage them on behalf of the the former customers of the of the client of and, the customer. And, and in Canada, the data that these companies collect is supposed to stay as the as our data. That's, that's our right. we own it. It can't be sold as an asset in a bankruptcy situation. But a lot of these bankruptcies happen uh, quite quietly. That's right. They yeah. shutter and quickly and quickly. Yeah. yeah. Well, before I let you guys go, uh, Ali, I'm going to leave you off with this last question. Um, what was the last thing you binge watched on uh, any of these streaming services? Uh, so I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Paranoid. It's on Netflix. It's a short series. It's I think it's only one season, uh, but it's it's full of heavy hitters. So there's, it's all like mainstream actors and. Uh, I can't say I understood it, and, and the trailers. The trailers actually are probably a little bit better than the show, but it was. Uh, yeah, I binge watched it. I got it done in about two days. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> well, Linda, Ali, thank you guys both for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Faka, CEO of Glue Technology Society. And stay with us, Kenneth Evans from Ruckus Digital and Apex PR. He's going to join us next. New report out from the CMO Lab. CMO, of course, stands for Chief Marketing Officer, and it reveals that marketers in Canada have been a little slow on the draw, keeping up with the times. We see just a lot of digital disruption going on, new platforms, and just new ways that people are absorbing information around them. So with us to, to discuss why more than half of marketers are maybe you know a little bit slow to change the way things are being done in the industry, it is Kenneth Evans. He's managing partner at Apex PR. He's also over at Ruckus Digital. And you guys produce this report. And Kenneth, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the show today. It's very good to be here, Tyler. So I'm curious here, this report, give us a little background on it. What did you guys ultimately want to find out? And I'm wondering if it just confirmed everything maybe you suspected was going on in the industry or if it uncovered anything like genuinely shocking to you. So there were a number of things that were really surprising about the uh, the results of the CMO Lab report that we found. Um, and because we did go into this exercise with the hypothesis that um, a good you know, number, majority of uh, senior marketers in Canada, because of the disruption that you mentioned in your introduction, uh, because of their the change role that they have, uh, will have changed the way they approach their practice, their, uh, their whole focus, and in fact, how they allocated their budgets. Moving from away from sort of the traditional or conventional with a big emphasis on what we'll call the ad TV spent production, and still doing a little bit of that, but moving more of that into digital, moving that more into what we call integrated communications. So I can sort of unwind that or unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Because the thinking behind this started with our own experience as, uh, as an integrated agency. So Apex Public Relations uh, and our digital division, which is Ruckus Digital. And if we think about the programming we are doing on behalf of clients, and I'll look at it over the past five years, but it's really been uh, taking shape over the past 10 years, is we now work, uh, I would say about 85, 90% of our, with 85 to 90% of our clients on integrated communication. So that's uh, digital play, social play, earned uh, media, so media relations, moving in with influencers, um, and uh, and even moving into some uh, paid uh, digital programming as well to amplify some of the programming. 
So given that we've seen this shift in terms of how we're delivering our uh, services and expertise to clients, uh, we wanted to delve a little bit deeper into uh, into CMOs because we know also, based uh, mostly on North American uh, data and North American uh, reporting, uh, that the CMO's role has um, has become much more ambitious over the past several years. They have much more um, much more responsibility uh, when we think about their mandate. So. It's moved beyond just the customer experience. That is obviously primary. The customer experience, the customer, you know, the path to purchase and all of that, that's still primary. But increasingly, as the CMO is taking a very front and center seat in the executive suite, they're also responsible for um, how the whole marketing plays into corporate culture, how the whole marketing plays into brand reputation, brand reputation management, uh, how they need to think about integrating their programming with uh, employees and with stakeholder. So, so they've got a much bigger job uh, than they've ever had. So given our experiences as an agency and given the overall shift of the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer role, uh, changing, becoming more ambitious, we wanted to delve deeper into this and uh, we hypothesized that this notion of a more integrated communication across those various channels with those various audiences with a new sort of focus on reputation management being uh, a bigger responsibility would have compelled a good majority to have shifted the way they do work. So it was a surprise when we found only a third have. And with that said, I mean, do you get any ideas about why, I guess, the Canadian side of this business is a little bit reluctant to get on board with a lot of the changes that they're seeing around them. Is it just kind of these entrenched ideas about, well, this is how it's always been done. It's easier to keep doing it this way. Why, why is there this reluctance to get with the times? Well, I think there are a number of, uh, I think there are a number of forces at play here. Uh, I, yeah, and in fact, phase two of CMO lab is uh, going into the qualitative uh portion of this. So we will start to peel the onion and get some clarification around uh, this a little bit more over the coming months. And then we'll be releasing phase two in the early in the new year. But some key things that uh, that we have uh, that we've uncovered and some assumptions of why you have 53% who haven't changed the way they do business. Number one is it it could be just as simple as um, organizational structure whereby um, organizations are still relatively siloed. Um, so you still have corporate communications under one area, you have marketing under another area, you have employee communications potentially with HR, you may have another group that's responsible for stakeholder engagement. Reputation management and those kinds of issues have historically been with the corporate comms people and sort of arms, arms length from marketing. Um, so it could simply be that the structure within an organization is um, is kind of hampering CMOs from getting that that purview and that that view over all those elements to be able to uh, execute on them. So that 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 could be one thing. Uh, I think another area is certainly a bit, and and again, I'm I can't wait to uncover this through the qualitative research. Could be that sort of uh, that bias of what has worked in the past uh, will always work. If it ain't broken, don't 
fix it kind of mentality. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to assume that that's a very small uh, minority, but that, that obviously is, is, is there. And I would, I would sort of connect that, that bias of the sort of conventional programming with potentially some risk aversion um, because shifting an organizational's marketing spend in any kind of serious pivot um, has some obvious risks associated to it. So, th- so there could be a certain amount of risk aversion as well. And I would say the final uh, reason why we, we might be seeing these results is I, I think, I think uh, communications and public relations agencies, uh, as we have started to practice a much more integrated uh, approach to our programming and strategies, I perhaps we could have done and need to do a better job of helping marketers and CMOs understand the other elements of integrated communications. Uh, Understand that there is incredible power in taking a marketing campaign and amplifying it through employees and through stakeholders. Uh, Because even though those are still important audiences for CMOs, uh, they're still you know, they, they still don't strategically, necessarily strategically brought into the mix on how to amplify a campaign. Uh, and certainly, and we've seen this in a lot of experiences or a lot of, uh, sorry, cases through social media and digital, um, a lot of very expensive marketing campaigns that are getting launched without getting a gut check on the reputation side. Um, I mean, we've seen uh, the episode last week with uh, the retailer Simons and uh, and the bra issue with uh, naming it after our you know former chief justice of the Supreme Court. I mean those, and we've seen a whole series of those kinds of issues. And that to me is just that you know the whole sensibility about reputation management and brand reputation and getting the gut check of you know experts in that category is something that isn't necessarily part and parcel of the process. So we have to take some responsibilities on the PR comm side for. Uh, perhaps not, not, uh, not socializing uh, what we do and the value that we bring to the table uh, as well. So I, I would say those are some of the key, uh, the key issues at play. Yeah, one of the things that you seize on in the report, and, and you also, you've also mentioned it a few times here, is just the importance of brands. And, and I'm curious, you know, why it is that you, you know we have, I, I believe the report says 90% of CMOS they say that the way that their brand or their organization, the way it's perceived, it's become more important in recent years. And I'm wondering if that is just a result of, say, the way that people interact on social media, just digital technologies. How much is that part and parcel with kind of the changing face of the industry right now? Uh, I think it's, I think it's significant. Um, I think it's significant, and that that is, I think that's also associated with the concept I talked around around risk aversion. Uh, there are just way more risks. Uh, out there when marketers are uh, launching campaigns and investing in new campaigns and and programs. Uh, And it is around social media. Um, And it is around the the incredible speed at which um, an issue can sort of take hold. Uh, It's also understanding just the incredible nuances that are required uh, when we think about any kind of campaign um, at target, uh, you know, uh, targeted at, at various audiences. So, so that that's 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 a huge part of it. There's also um, the element of data. Um, so, data obviously plays uh, increasingly an important um, 
sort of lead and influence over the direction of a campaign and a marketing campaign. But sometimes data can be sometimes data can kind of take you away from some of those important nuances. I'd almost call them those instincts or intuitions that you kind of still need when you're putting these uh, kinds of programs together. Um, but I would say mostly it's, it's definitely the, the, uh, the risk, the, 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 uh, the volume, the mass of social media that can uh, tr trip them up every now and then. And I think one of the things that happens is, you know, uh, on social media, a company can come under fire. They have that reputational threats that uh, we were kind of alluding to here when you mentioned Simons. If you look at the Simons example with regards to naming a, a new bra after the uh, uh, female uh, Supreme Court justice here, I mean, how do you think that they handle that? Because they, uh, in the report, there's a lot of talk about how more than half of these CMOs wish that they had been a little bit quicker to address these reputational threats that would arise. Yeah, there are a couple of things. So, I mean, just on the Simon side, I will say that although that was an odd and uh, baffling um, concept in terms of the naming of the bra in the first place, uh, I will say that their, um, their effort to manage that issue and their uh, speed in which they addressed it and having the CEO come out with uh, a genuine uh, apology um, and uh, in conversing with uh, Chief McLaughlin, uh, I, I thought they, I think it was unfortunate that it began in the first place, but I have to give them some credit in managing it and uh, and doing it appropriately. Um, so, so, so there's that. But it does go to the report you mentioned. Uh, like 90% of organizations are, are uh, or CMOs are much more preoccupied by brand reputation. A majority of them felt that they could be more proactive in managing uh, an issue um, that uh, that materialized. And I think those numbers go to this growing sense that the reputation management side, and we've, we sort of focus on it because I think it's a concern, it's an anxiety uh, that a lot of CMOs have, partly because it's never been a primary uh, responsibility. Um, again, that has usually fallen to corporate communications, but because organizations are shifting, they're transforming, they're changing their structures, they're trying to reduce silos, they're trying to create more collaboration within organizations, that that now is falling increasingly under uh, CMOs, and it's a new area. And I think because of that, um, it raises some, uh, some legitimate concerns and anxieties. Uh, and again, an area where I think PR and communications agencies and professionals um, could support them a lot more. Well, I'm curious because you obviously focus here on the Canadian sector. And I'm, I'm wondering, are these issues that you believe that CMOs across the globe are facing? Or do you think there's something uh, just around what's going on in Canada, maybe the, the, the culture within Canada that is preventing, I don't know, CMOs or, or making them reluctant to, I, I guess, keep up with the times? No, I don't, I don't think it's particular to, uh, to, to the Canadian sector. We don't, mm -hmm. uh, I don't have the research, uh, and we haven't done the research in other markets, you know, whether it be uh, you know, south of the border or whether it be in other markets overseas. Um, so I don't have that data. I can make some assumptions that I don't think it's particular to Canada. Okay. I do think it might have something to do with, uh, with the fact that uh, a number of, uh, of our large uh, companies that, uh, that operate here in Canada have head offices in other uh, countries, whether it's in the States or elsewhere, in which case the team in Canada could be a bit of a satellite uh, and hence are executing on the programs that are being developed in, uh, you know, whether it's the United States or Asia or Europe. 
so that could have uh, that could have an impact on their capacity to change um but no i um I, I think that's something that we have to uh, delve deeper into and have a look at. But I, my gut tells me it's not particular to Canada. Well, just as we wrap up here, Kenneth, I'm, I'm wondering what do you think is kind of the number one takeaway that professionals should you know leave with after uh, consuming this report here? I think there are uh, a couple key things. As we know, because of the uh, of technology, we know because of uh, the digital dynamic that uh, that has spawned the, the whole elements of disruption that is affecting every single industry. And I mean, this we've been saying it for a long time, and it's almost trite to talk about disruption, but it's still a reality. That CMOs need to change. CMOs need to think about their content um, and how that plays across those various channels in a very consistent. Uh, genuine way. You've heard the term authentic. Um, marketers and uh, people in my business use it a lot. Most of the time we fail to articulate well, authentic just means a different kind of content, a different kind of story that puts your audience front and center and the brand second. It is leading with the interest of the audience and their world and their lives and their needs and what utility brands can bring to them. And the brand really has to play second fiddle to the target audience. And that is just showing brand humility. So we're hoping that marketers look at integrated communication, including on the earn side, on the reputation management side. Yes, including on the TV buy. But think about it in a much more holistic, integrated, consistent way. That that narrative, that overarching brand narrative, um, needs to have consistency across all those touch points, meaning those channels, but also those audiences. And, and, and do look at, I call it, you know, um, you know a brand's the superpower, which is their employees and their stakeholders. Um, and they could be leveraged much, much more powerfully um, in terms of amplifying a particular campaign. Well, Kenneth, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Very illuminating report that's come out from uh, CMO Lab here. I thank you once again. Thank you, Tyler. All the best. That's Kenneth Evans, Managing Partner at Apex PR and Ruckus Digital. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. You can find our archives on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also find all our news stories from the newspaper at BIV.com. Stay with us. We'll be back tomorrow.